the prayer of our souls is that God would send His Spirit into this place and into our community of faith in such a way that revival would spread and we would accomplish the mission and the task that He's called us to. Over the last uh, few weeks, it just seems that God's been putting together messages either through uh, what He's given me to preach or through Tom last week about the need for us as a community, the need for us as a church to fulfill that mission that God has called us to. To fulfill what God has asked us to do, to be on mission with Him. And that means sharing Him, sharing faith with our neighbors and co-workers and people here in Goodlettsville and in this state and around the world. And uh, most of you are aware that we had a team of 28 that just returned from Brazil this week and Next week, you're going to hear a great report from them about what God did. People have asked me today that question, did you have a good trip? And my response has consistently been, we had a great trip. It wasn't just a good trip. It was a great trip. And God did some amazing things on that trip. And you're going to hear testimony to that next week. And the week after that, we're going to begin to talk about some practical ways to fulfill the mission that God has called us to do. We're going to talk about some practical ways to share our faith, to tell our story, to to tell others who Jesus is, and to remind ourselves of the grand story. The the, the word in today's lingo is the meta narrative, the the big grand story that the Bible portrays. And we're going to remind ourselves of that from Genesis through Revelation. Um, we're going to look at what God intends to do, so that we can be equipped in order to fulfill his mission. And as I was praying about what God would have me to say on this week after returning from Brazil, and this week that he is preparing our hearts for this task of taking him into the community and into our world, I really began to think about those things in our lives that can derail us from accomplishing God's mission. Those things in our lives that could stop us from accomplishing the mission that God has for us. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 7. Old Testament passage, a passage of Scripture that I don't think the word love is something that I would use about it. It's not necessarily one of my favorite passages of Scripture, but I think it is a very important passage of Scripture. And as I began to think about the things that could derail what God intends to do in this place, one of the things that I thought about and one of the things God laid on my heart is that God will not work in our lives, in our community, in our church, if we are not open and honest and clean before Him. Joshua chapter 7 is not one of those passages of Scripture that gets preached a whole lot anymore. Joshua 5 and 6 get preached a lot. In fact, there are a lot of preachers that will preach the book of Joshua, and they'll preach chapters 1 through 6, and then they'll skip to the end to that famous passage where Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, kind of skipping all that part in the middle. And the reason they stop at chapter 7 is because this is where the news gets a little gloomy. And just to remind you of where we are, Moses died at the end of the books right before Joshua. You know, Joshua 
comes right after the first five books of the Bible. Joshua starts what they call the history books. And these are the books that kind of follow after Moses' death. And Joshua is the appointed leader, and he gets ready to enter into the promised land. This is one of those times in history when God has given a clear mandate as to the task to which he has called his people. He says, you were to go into the promised land, you were to subdue it, you were to wipe out everybody that's there, you were to take it by force because I have established that land for you to make my name great. And so Joshua's at the beginning of this and Moses has passed away, the entire generation before has passed away after they're wandering in the wilderness and Joshua gets ready to enter the promised land and he gets a little nervous and God says that famous passage in chapter 1, be strong and courageous. For I am with you. Meditate on the word of the Lord day and night. And Joshua begins to go out and to take the promised land by force. And he sees victory after victory to begin. And previous to chapter 7, where we're going to read today, is that great passage of Scripture about the battle of Jericho. Now, you use the word battle kind of in quotation marks because it really wasn't much of a battle. You remember the story of Jericho, right? How did they defeat Jericho? They walked. That great military strategy of walking around the walls. Now, you know, in that day and time, cities were fortified. They had walls up. One of the things we saw in Brazil is that every building had a wall up. And on top of the wall, if you look at some of the pictures, some of you have seen some of our pictures on Facebook and other online places. And next week, we'll show some pictures from the trip. On top of their walls, they have broken bottles turned upside down in the concrete as a barrier. Well, ancient cities had walls all the way around the city to guard against attack. And so what happened is the Israelites were instructed by the Lord that Jericho had one of the most massive walls, one of the most impressive walls, that you're going to walk around the wall. Now, how many times did they walk? Seven times, all right? For several days they walked. Seventh day, they get ready, they walk. And I love this because God announces that this victory is coming through the use of instruments, right? Blow the trumpet, and the walls came tumbling down. Up until this point, that had been the greatest victory in the life of the Israelites in fulfilling God's command. Let me just say this to you. I mentioned earlier that this at the beginning of Joshua is one of the few times in Scripture when the clear command of God is given to His people about what they are to accomplish for Him. Here's the thing. You and I have the same clear command. Now, ours is not to walk around the city of Jericho. But Jesus did say as He's leaving the earth that all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me, and you are to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just in case we missed it in Acts 1-8 as He's getting ready to ascend. He says, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we have a clear call of God on our lives as to what our mission is. Now that plays out differently in each life, but we all are to be a part of doing that mission. And in chapter 6, at the end of that of Joshua 6, we have this wonderful understanding that they are doing exactly what God has commanded chapter 7, verse 1. How many of you have an NIV version out there? Let me see your hands. Is there a, a heading above that chapter 7? What does it say? Achan's sin, right? Achan. What, who or what is Achan? Achan is a man, right? 
How many Achans are there in this story? One, all right? Just keep that in mind. Achan is one man. Verse 1, But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Now remember, you may or may not remember this part of the story. When God told him to go take Jericho, he says, I'm going to deliver Jericho into your hands, but this is my bargain with you. I'm going to give you Jericho, but you can't take anything. When you go through the city, that is all to be devoted unto me, the spoils, the riches, the, the money, the, the gold, the silver, all that is to be mine. And so when you go through that city, don't take anything for yourself. Those things are sacred unto me. They are holy unto me. They are set apart for me. Verse 1 again. The Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the voted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Achan. Is that what it says? Israel. Let me just tell you a couple of things about those verses. First of all, in verse 1, when it says the Israelites acted unfaithfully, the word there actually means in secret or in the hidden places, they did something deceptively. And then at the end when it says the Lord's anger burned against the Lord, that phrase is used several times in the Old Testament, but most of the time it is used specifically of the Lord. And this is what it means. He was white, hot, mad at them. Anybody out here ever had somebody white, hot, mad at you? Anybody? Last night was our anniversary. And so we we took time to go out to eat, and then we uh, went, you know, when it's just the two of you, now that we have two and a third on the way, doing anything just the two of you is a treat. Amen? Some of you parents out there, amen? And so I, I and Susan, we went to eat, and we went to a nice restaurant we'd never been to before, and then afterwards we decided to go shopping. Now, um, we went over to Green Hills, and Susan likes particular stores. I like particular other stores. And so Susan went to a uh, maternity store, and I felt a little out of place there, just to be honest. And so I went to the Apple store. And while I was there, I was asking them a question about my phone that's acting up just a little bit, nothing major. I was just seeing if they could fix it. And while I was there, another man walked in. And at Apple, they have this place where you make online reservations. You have reservations. You come. They'll help you out with any problems you have. And this particular man had a problem with his phone. The problem is he had not made a reservation. Well, he apparently did not think he was the kind of man that needed a reservation. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever been that way, but he was a little upset about the fact that he was told to wait because there were people with reservations. When the man told him he could no longer help him with the phone, that he would have to wait. The man went into a tirade that I cannot repeat here or anywhere else. And I saw a man, white, hot, mad. I felt sorry for the guy on the other end. Now here's the thing. His was an unrighteous, unholy anger. And I am not suggesting that God in any way is defamatory in his conduct or his speech. What I am suggesting is what the Scripture suggests is that God was white, hot, mad. And I'll tell you and be real honest with you, that guy, when he left, I didn't think another minute about the fact that he might be mad at me. 
But if I found out God was white, hot, mad at me, that would be a little disconcerting. Amen? And so we have in this passage this idea as the backdrop in verse 1. But what has happened here really in chapter 7 is they're telling a grand story and they let the audience in on a little secret and then watch it play out with us knowing the secret that nobody else knows. Verse 2. They finished with Jericho, so Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Haven, the east of Bethel, and told them, go up, spy out the region. So the men went up and spied it out. And they go up, they look at it. Now listen, there's some people that say they didn't really consult the Lord about this. The point is they were doing exactly what God had called them to do. They were just following directions. The real problem here is not what Joshua and his men failed to do in scouting out the town. The real problem is that God's anger was burning against the community because of the sin of Achan. And so they get up there, and the men spot it out, and they return. They say, we don't have to send everybody up there. I mean, did you see what God just did at Jericho? Let's just send a couple of thousand. There are just a few men there. So about 3,000 men went up. But, Scripture, that means something unexpected happened. They were routed by the men of Ai who killed about 36 of them. You can say, wait a minute, that's not very many. Here's the point. At Jericho, how many did they lose? None. And so they come up to this city and they think we're going to take it. And all of a sudden their men start getting killed. They go, this is not supposed to happen. We're supposed to be following the Lord. What in the world's going on? And they, to use a phrase from my youth, turn tail and run. They chase the Israelites. That's the people from Ai. All the way from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. That same phrase, by the way, is used when the spies come back and tell the people about the people of Canaan. And the Israelites reject the Lord and decide to stay in the land of wilderness. Verse 6. One of the most interesting passages to me is when Joshua tears his clothes falls face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord and remained there till evening. He goes straight to the Lord. And the elders of Israel did the same. And they sprinkled dust on their heads. They're pouring. They're going, what in the world's going on? What's happened, Lord? And Joshua said, Sovereign Lord, why did you bring us out here just to deliver us into their hands? <laughs> Sounds like the Israelites. Why, why, God, why don't you bring us out of Egypt if you're going to kill us in the wilderness? God, I don't understand this. We're doing this for your name's sake. What can I say? Israel has been routed. The Canaanites and other people will hear about this. They will surround us. They will wipe out our name. What then will we be able to do for you? Joshua thinks he's got righteous anger here. And I love verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Get up. What are you doing down there on your face? Isn't it about me? This isn't about me and my name, and you think you're out there fighting for me? You do not realize that Israel has sinned. Who sinned? Achan sinned, right? Israel has sinned. They violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They took some of the devoted things. They stole. They lied. They put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not, one of the most frightening phrases in all of Scripture, 
I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. One of the most frightening things a church could ever hear is for the Lord to say, I will not be with you anymore. Let me just be perfectly honest. There are churches all across this land who have turned their backs on the ways of God in favor of things that they would rather do. And as a result, even though their ears have not yet heard it, God has declared that He is with them no longer. And my greatest fear as a pastor is for the Lord to say unto me, I will no longer be with you as you lead these people. Verse 13. Consecrate the people. Make them holy. Set apart. Purify yourselves. Tell them that to consecrate yourselves in preparation. That which is devoted among you, O Lord, you cannot stand until your enemies, until you remove it. So they get together in the morning present themselves tribe by tribe. The Lord tells them to come forward clan by clan, family by family, and that family that the Lord takes shall come forward man by man. He is called with devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant and has done a disgraceful thing. So the next morning, verse 16, they do that. The clans come forward and he took the Zerites. This is kind of a selection process. He then had the Zerites come forward by families, and Zimri was taken. And Joshua and his family came forward man by man. And Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell him what you have done. Do not hide it from him. We're going to come back to that in a minute because... Most of us, when we think of worship, don't think of confession as worship. Achan replied, it is true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw and plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge, I coveted them and I took them and then I hid them in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Joshua sent messages. They ran to the tent. There it was hidden in the tent. They took the things from the tent. They brought them to Joshua and the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons, his daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua declared, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. See why it doesn't get preached much, right? It's not exactly what you call a happy Hollywood ending there. But there's some important principles for us to learn as we move forward as a church. I've told you since the day that I came as your pastor, almost two years ago now, that I believe God has unbelievable plans for this church. And I want to tell you that after this summer, with the people that God has brought to lead as a staff, with the people that are 
within the sound of my voice right now in this congregation and the gifts and the talents that he has placed in this congregation. Coming off a Brazil trip that was great and seeing God use and work through those 27 other people in ways that are unimaginable, I am more convinced today that God is going to do something magnificent and wonderful and unimaginable through the people in this congregation. But I am also aware that Satan would love nothing more than to deceive us into thinking that we can do it on our own or that we can keep hidden some things in our lives and God will still bless us. And one of the things God has laid on my heart this week, and I don't know who and I don't know why, but I know that God has laid on my heart this week is this, that this church will not move forward as long as there are hidden things devoted to destruction in the lives of the people in this congregation. And so today we're going to talk about removing the mask. And what I mean by that is we have created a culture in our churches and in America where you and I could walk into this place and have the most hideous things going on in our personal lives, and yet we walk in here, we slip on a mask, act like everything is okay, hunky-dory, wonderful, and exist as if the church isn't affected at all by what happens in our personal lives. And what I'm asking you to do today for the next few minutes is simply to take that mask that you've been wearing. And not for the people in this congregation. I'm not asking you to remove it for anyone's benefit here. What I'm asking you to do today is to remove the mask momentarily this morning and allow yourselves to look face to face with the Lord our God and allow Him to search you and try you and know you and show you those things in your life that need to be removed if you and this church are going to move forward. And there are just a few things. I wanted to tell the story first and then bring the principles out after it. Just a few things that I want us to be aware of this morning that the Lord is speaking to us today. And the first one is this, is that we must always be watchful. We must remain watchful. What always amazes me about this story is that it comes out of a great victory. I want you to imagine for a moment, if you can, the scene at Jericho. I mean, Joshua comes to the people and he says, listen, here's, I've got this idea. This is what we're going to do. I know it's a big wall. We're going to walk around the wall. And at the seventh day, we're going to do it seven times, and then we're all going to yell and play some trumpets, and the wall's going to come down. Now, imagine if I got up there and told you that as a pastor. Hey, guess what? For the next seven days, we're going to walk around this building. But not that the building's going to come tumbling down, all right? But when we get through on the seventh time, we're going to yell, and suddenly we're going to see 4,000 people come to the Lord in this place right now. You all look at me like, you are nuts. He must have drank something in Brazil that did not sit well with him. Right? Now imagine the scene in Jericho when they do exactly what Joshua... You know, now there are some that, you know, I believe that many of them believed in Joshua, trusting the Lord, but I just know people. And there are some of them walking around going, this is ridiculous. What are we doing? Somebody get ready with the trumpet. Cliff, you know that happened, don't you? you yeah. I mean, people are just, I guess because he said we're going to do it, we're going to do it. But 
this is not going to work. How many of you think that happened somewhere along the way? All right, if you don't raise your hand, you hadn't lived very long, all right? And so then they do it, and what happens? The walls come down, and you can imagine the people living in Jericho on the other side and the looks on their faces when the walls come down. And suddenly the Israelites rout them. And you can imagine the joy in that place, the jumping, the yelling, the screaming, the hollering. I don't think they probably called it hollering, because hollering's a kind of a southern thing, but that's what they were doing. And in the midst of that great victory, Achan, I don't believe, set out that day and thought, I'm going to take some of the things that are dedicated unto the Lord. But I can imagine them jumping around, look, did you see this? Look over here. Look what we found. And in the midst of that celebration, this mountaintop experience, this unbelievable time with the Lord, that the Lord has won victory, he glances over to the side and he sees something. Look at how his confession tells us that sin comes into our lives. It says, I saw, right? What's the next thing he says? He listed all. Then he coveted. Now let me just tell you, when you covet, you enter into sin. How do I know that? What's the Tenth Commandment? Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Okay, you ought to know it by now, all right? Thou shalt not covet. So when he coveted, he sent him to the Lord. But he could have stopped what eventually happened, right? Now, I know that, that, that sin is all sin, but the consequences of sin vary depending on how far you go into sin. Amen? And so he could have stopped and said, Ooh, I would really like to have that. But he didn't, did he? He says, I saw. He says, I coveted. Then what does he say? I took and then I hid. You know what's interesting about that? It's the same pattern we see in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve see the fruit. They desire the fruit. They eat the fruit, and then what do they do? They hide. David with Bathsheba, what does he do? He's out on the ledge. He's supposed to be at war. He sees Bathsheba. He covets Bathsheba. He takes Bathsheba, and then he tries to bury the sin. It's the same pattern. And here's what I want you to realize is, in Scripture over and over again, it seems that when people are at their strongest point is when the Satan will attack. There are all kinds of times Satan will attack. He'll attack when you're emotionally tired, when you're emotionally worn. He'll attack in various ways, in various places. But one of the places he attacks that we don't expect it is when we are having a mountaintop, wonderful experience with the Lord. And in the midst of that, Achan gives in. Here's the point. Remain watchful at all times. You can never take a vacation from being diligent and being aware of the schemes of Satan. Second thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is that hidden sins never remain hidden. Hidden sins never remain hidden. Adam and Eve, what happens? God comes walking through the garden in the cool of the day. It says, where are you? What'd you do? David and Bathsheba, I mentioned them, right? 
David keeps it under wraps for a while, and then what happens? A prophet of the Lord comes into him and says, You are the man. Not like in a good way. Remember Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament? They come and say, We we sold this plot of land, and we have brought every bit of the money right here. What does God do? Their sin is made known. Here's the thing. In believers' lives, God will not tolerate perpetual hidden sin. And it will be revealed. What I think is interesting about this passage of Scripture is that Achan, and God intended it this way, had plenty of opportunities to repent, right? Joshua comes before the people and says, Listen, somebody has taken some of the devoted things, and here's how we're going to settle it. We're going to go by tribes and families and individuals and we're just going to work ourselves down to that person is exposed and there are times at each point when Achan could have said here I'll save everybody the misery because Achan knew he had done it now what I think Achan is concerned about or thinks about is maybe somebody else did too and God didn't know I did right it had to be because as they start to whittle down don't you think Achan could have saved everybody a little bit of grief going all right it's me it's me. I remember when I was growing up, uh, in the summer we stayed with my granny Nell, who lived in Dyersburg, and there were four cousins, my brother who was the oldest, and then uh, Paige who was three months younger, than, I mean three years younger than him, and then I and my other cousin who's just six weeks younger than me. We all stayed, all four of us. And I particularly remember one time when granny found out that we had done something she had explicitly told us not to do. I don't have a clue what that was. I don't remember that. But Granny set down some pretty strict rules, and we had broken them. And so she came to us, and she looked at the four of us and said, if you tell me who did it, if the person who did it will fess up, then I won't punish all of you. I had not done it because I never did anything. I was the, the good kid. And I knew who it was because it was always the culprit. It was my brother. He always was a troublemaker. And she said, and if you, if you confess, your punishment will be lighter. It was my brother this particular time that had done it, and I talked to them about it later, and he just assumed Granny really didn't know who did it. Or she would have come right out and said it. So Granny said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the helping hand. Now, I just want you to know the helping hand was not something that was pleasant. All right? Anybody ever seen the helping hand? It was a little paddle in the shape of a hand. And it had written on it, the helping hand. I don't know who thought it was helping because it didn't help my rear end when the helping hand hit the rear end. Now, that was back in the day. I know today you're not supposed to spank kids. I got spanked, all right? And so Granny said, this is what I'm going to do. You're going to walk past me. And when the person who did it walks past me, they're going to get licks with the helping hand. So we all started in progression from youngest to oldest. That's how she told us to go. I have since learned that she was trying to teach us all a lesson. Because she knew all along it was my brother who was the oldest. But as each one of us walked through that line, it was a, an emotionally painful experience. And when my brother walked through, it was a physically painful experience. Here's the thing. 
Achan somehow in his mind convinced himself that he could keep his sins hidden. And let me just tell you, we look at that and we think how ridiculous that is, and yet I would almost guarantee that 95% of you in this room have stuff that you think you're hiding from God. Or if you're not, you know God knows about it, you just think it's not bad enough, we, we all struggle with it, it's not big enough for him to worry about. Those of you that have known me and been around know that I'm not a typical hellfire and brimstone kind of preacher. And there are times when part of my fault might be that I steer around some of those more convicting parts of Scripture because I just love the grace and the mercy aspect. But as simply and as forcefully as I can tell you, nothing that you do is hidden from the Lord. No small indiscretion, no momentary lapse in judgment, no fleeting lustful thought is hidden from the Lord. And I don't know in your life what you think you're hiding from Him or from us. But I do know this. If there is perpetual, habitual sin in your life, it can damage what we're trying to do here as a congregation. That's the third thing I want you to see from this passage. Hidden sin can destroy a community of faith's mission. They're getting ready to go take Ai. What did God call them to do as a group? To conquer the land, right? So Joshua gets his men together. They scouted out. They come back. There's a lot made over whether that was right or wrong. Here's the point. That's not the big deal. The big deal is the sin in the camp. So they get ready and they go out. Joshua's following what the Lord wants them to do. They're doing exactly what they want them to do. And in the midst of that, they get routed. All because of one man's sin. Now, I just want to be real honest with you. In America... And in modern times, we have developed this idea that what we do as individuals does not affect the whole. We are the most individualistic society that has ever existed on the face of the earth. And in all reality, most of the time, we don't need each other. At least, we convince ourselves of that. My father-in-law, who was in Brazil with me, were talking about this about the community aspect that you saw among the people there. People that had nothing. Nothing. And we talked about in America how we don't ever know our neighbors because we don't ever have to know our neighbors. Now some of you out there, well, I know my neighbors, but we don't know our neighbors like people used to know their neighbors. And I want you to think about it. When I leave this place from my office that if I want to, I could walk into every day and shut the doors and be in there for eight hours by myself every day. I don't do that, but I could. could walk out of there, get in my car, turn on the radio where I don't have to interact with anybody, drive to my house, and just in case the neighbors might see me outside, I have a garage door opener that I only have to get out of my car for, drive into the garage, shut the garage, walk into my house, and I never interact with anybody on the outside world. And we live our lives in this individualistic way. So we come into church on Sunday morning and we think, well, even though there is this terrible thing going on in my life, this place where I'm giving in to Satan on a regular basis and I'm not following the Lord, and it doesn't have to be some big egregious sin. It could be a hate in your heart. It could be distrust of the Lord. It could be some lustful desire and thought that you uh, have in your mind. 
that something is happening in my life, but that's okay because it's not affecting anybody else. Let me just suggest to you that Scripture never talks about individualism. It never talks about us as individuals. In the New Testament, when it talks about you, we read those yous to be us. In the New Testament, when it says you, almost always it is plural as in y'all. I wish they'd make a southern version of the Bible. Because in cases, it would be much more accurate. And we never have individual. And here's what I want you to know. What you do affects the mission of this church. What I do affects the mission of this church. And this is what I believe. In the weeks and the months that are ahead, we could come into this place and have some of the most amazing music and worship you can imagine. We could have Sunday school classes and small groups and community groups that are just studying the Bible for all it's worth. We could have individuals in this community going out into our Goodlettsville, White House, Gallatin, Greenbrier, Ridgetrop, Hendersonville communities and share their faith with other people. And yet we still not see the Lord work in any way. If we don't get rid of the things that are hidden in our lives. And I know they're there. One of the most interesting websites that's been around, I've mentioned it before, is a website called postsecret.com. And people just to this anonymous address send postcards in with their deepest, darkest secrets on it. Things that they are doing that nobody else knows. A church did a sermon series called My Secret, and they set up the same kind of thing. And I went on there today, and that sermon series has been over for over a year now, and people are still constantly putting things up anonymously. And when Achan and Joshua and his people found out is that our individual sins can destroy our community's mission. Here's the last thing in this passage. It's going to be kind of strange considering what Achan's end was. But it says repentance brings hope. Now, I know the story of Achan doesn't end very well, right? But I want you to consider for a minute, and some people think it's a harsh punishment. I think, and we're going to talk about this when we get into the big, grand story, and we talk about being storytellers for the Lord. I think it's important to understand that sin is very, very serious. I mean, when Achan says that he has sinned, he says he has sinned against the Lord. That was a foreign concept in that day and time. Sometimes people take other mythologies and other things and try to compare them to the Bible. No other cultures talked about sinning against the Lord. It was a real, difficult, serious offense. And I think we have glossed over the effects of sin and the reality of sin and what sin is in our lives, and we call them things like momentary lapse in judgment or lifestyle choice or mistakes I made. But sin is a serious offense, and we see in this passage how seriously God takes sin. But I want you to also understand this. He was responsible, Achan was responsible for a delay in the Lord's plan. And not only that, he was responsible for the death of Israelites, right? Right? 
They went up into fight and they got defeated. Why did they get defeated? Because of Achan's sin, which was portrayed onto all of the community. And so it was a serious offense. But here's what happens in chapter 8. They get rid of the sin. And when they get rid of the sin, God says, now here's the plan. Go back to Ai. And they go back to Ai in the same place that routed them. They route. And at the end of chapter 8, God says, let's renew our covenant together. Let's get back together, have a wonderful worship service, declare the law of the Lord, and have a moment when we celebrate what I'm going to do through you, with you, as we take this promised land. And it's almost a recommitment to the purpose and the mission and the glory of the Lord. Now, here's why repentance brings more hope today than it did then. Because in the New Testament, there is a figure that takes Achan's place, and his name is Jesus, the Son of God, Christ Almighty, exalted Messiah, who paid the price for you and me on the cross with his death. And so when we have sin in the camp, we bring it before the Lord. Their punishment today is not everybody gather around and let's stone him because the punishment has already been taken. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that he brings real, honest hope for all of us at all stages of our lives. Next week when we talk about Brazil, you're going to hear lots of stories and those kind of things, but Here's the thing that I take away from Brazil every time I go. It's a quote from Mother Teresa that just replays in my mind. Mother Teresa, who worked with the poor for many, many years, says that Jesus is never all you need until Jesus is all you got. And when I was there last week, homes that had seven or eight people living in them that weren't very big at all, weren't the, maybe the size of this stage, seven or eight people living there, no food, no furniture, and we would think no hope. But when those people were introduced to the glory of Jesus Christ, they received the hope that he brings. And on Friday night, when we celebrated together at a worship service, you saw people that we had given them their very first pair of shoes. You saw people that had come to us asking for food. You saw families that had children. They didn't know how they were going to feed. And the song that was played when you were in here today as a prelude was a song you couldn't understand in the least. And yet they started to sing that. And when these people began to sing that song, they rose in expectation and hope of who Jesus Christ is, even though in physical terms, They had absolutely nothing. And those of us that sit in this room have every kind of blessing you can imagine in getting us to express our thankfulness to the Lord for the hope He has provided is like pulling teeth out of our mouths. And here's the reason. It's because we have lost an understanding of the seriousness of sin and what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we must come to a place 
where we open up and remove the mask and allow God to deal with it. Now, I'm not suggesting, and we're not going to have a time this morning where you come and stand in front of the entire community and confess your sins. But Scripture does say that you need to have people in your lives, not me as your preacher, as your priest, but people in your lives that you confess your sins one to another. And we as a church need to create an atmosphere where it is open and honest and okay and safe for people to confess. The problem is that in America, every one of us is hiding sins in our lives. So when somebody else confesses, we haven't confessed ours, so we can condemn and judge them even though our sins are buried deep. So what I'm asking you this morning is the same thing I asked you at the beginning, and that is simply to take your mask and remove it for just a little while. Allow God to begin to show you those things. Let me just tell you, I am more confident than ever that God is going to do more than we can ask or imagine or explain in this place. But I will tell you this, He will not do it if in our pride we hold on to those hidden things.